Gene, I'd like to tell you a little story that would maybe illustrate what Jeff Jarrett's all about. See, a guy once told me one time, you can take a pig and put a purple ribbon around his neck and even go as far as bringing him into your living room, but he's still a pig. It's a slot fan. Welcome to Keep It 2000, a joke that turned into a wrestling podcast that has revealed itself to be a psychological experiment. I am Brian Mann, and I'm being joined by my fellow test subject, Nate Milton. Now, Nate, before we started recording, I noticed that you're you're feeling a little under the weather now. This happened a little while ago. I know you're the optimist, but I, I really think these episodes are starting to take a physical toll on you. You know, brother man, at, at first I thought it was just a, a regular routine bout of space spring flu up here on the satellite of hate. But uh, the more we go through these episodes, I think I'm allergic to Hulk Hogan. So uh, uh, off the top, if the listeners notice a difference in my normal dulcet tones, uh, blame it on a uh, good old Terry Bollea. So do you think it's the red and yellow that does it? Like, let's say hypothetically in a month or so, he was suddenly wearing black jeans and a sweater vest would would that do you think you would be immune to that <laughs> I, I don't know I, I mean i might uh well we'll see brian no, nothing is is for sure uh i believe a wise man and an underutilized man once said the only thing for sure is nothing's for sure so uh we'll have to go and, and see how my my vital signs hold up as we continue this this romp through history but other than physically and mentally how are you holding up you, you know th- this has been a real rough stretch for us this kevin sullivan period it has but i think this week has one saving grace and we'll get to that mm-hmm. uh when we get to our review but yes the these episodes have felt they haven't felt too crazy but i think they felt a little safe and a little boring which is maybe the worst thing like when we were talking about some of the russo episodes they were all over the place but you were getting you know a lot of stuff thrown at you every segment Whereas with the Sullivan stuff, I, I'm not sure exactly what we're going for because it feels like they want to do something a little bit more old school, but they don't know how to utilize these current characters. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know which one I prefer. I certainly know what I prefer. Uh, I th- This is rough, but thankfully this particular episode we're going to talk about was so lackluster that it would actually prompt them to bring back Russo and Bishop. But we're going to talk about that at the end of the episode once we sort of review everything. But uh, we just went through our vitals, and thankfully we have a test subject here to sort of compare our reaction against. We are joined by the wrestling editor for Paste Magazine and also a fellow Atlanta native like myself. Garrett Martin is with us today. Garrett, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. Usually I would ask, were you watching WCW in 2000? But I mean, fun. we're, we're both <laughs> from Atlanta. We were definitely both watching WCW in the year 2000. Absolutely, yeah. I had two TVs in my living room in Athens, uh, one for Raw, one for Nitro. And you would just you know mute whichever one was less interesting at the time. So at this point in time, Nitro was muted almost the entire <laughs> two hours. 
what was the the wrestling college experience like because i was in middle school so i don't know what that experience would have been like <laughs> later in my life have you seen all those all the nitro party footages that they run in every nitro it was exactly it like was exactly that. like that oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah well i can speak from my experience you know i went uh to dean college which is up in uh franklin massachusetts uh I remember us having our bootleg nitro parties. I think I mentioned this on a previous episode, you know, where we would all go to the campus radio station because they were the only building that had reliable cable at the time. And we would just watch nitro. And for two years, it was glorious because, you know, 97, we've got all the sting stuff up in the Raptors and the NWO. And then in 98, we've got all the Goldberg stuff and DDP and Carl Malone and, and Dennis Rodman. Uh, so we had some good time, just, you know, a case of PBR and some some good old uh, good old college young men and, and, and occasionally a young woman. But that was rare. That was rarer than a good <laughs> lengthy cruiserweight match on one of these 2000 nitros. Uh, but, yeah, it was a lot of testosterone, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, excitement and ultimately a lot of uh, campus police being called to. <laughs> <laughs> wonder why the power was on at the radio station uh at uh, 11 and 12 at night <laughs> and uh garrett for you was this a wcw or like a wwe uh, you know, I would say both, actually. I mean, it, it, it definitely sort of followed the arc of the Attitude Era, where 96, 97, WCW was bigger. And then some point in 98, WWE became clearly bigger, and WCW just sort of slowly faded away from there. Uh, there was a bar right next to my apartment in Athens, a, a restaurant bar that used to show the pay-per-views for free every month. And um, so you'd want to get there at like four o'clock to make sure you got a good table because the entire place would get completely packed if you weren't there early enough. And yeah, we just go there every month and we watch the pay-per-views at the bar. We'd watch Nitro uh, and, and Raw back at my place or another friend's house. And um, it was definitely something that was pretty huge on campus. You know, Georgia obviously is where Goldberg played. So a lot of the bars downtown would have Goldberg posters or jerseys framed on the wall. Um, and, uh, you know, the bar, when it was packed, it was one of the best places to ever see wrestling. I remember uh, SummerSlam 98, the ladder match between... The Rock and Triple H. Mm -hmm. uh, just imagine, you know, like sort of like a dive type bar with maybe 100 people in it. And it's like perfectly down the middle, one for The Rock, one for Triple H. And it was one of the best environments I've ever had uh, to see a wrestling match in because of how passionate everyone was about that match. Um, but by this point, 2000, I only had a couple of friends still really watching Nitro. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of us like – trying to get other people to come with us to watch the pay-per-views. I think eventually one of us got one of those black boxes for the cable box because the bar stopped showing WCW pay-per-views by this point. They were WWE only by, uh, you know, middle of 2000 probably. So, I mean, WCW, even in a place you think would be a stronghold like Athens, it was already definitely noticeable that it was going downhill. So you're saying people weren't lining up at 4 o'clock to see the Yapapai strap match? No, that did not <laughs> happen. And I'm glad I did not have to rewatch that. <laughs> Thank you for uh, not asking me to do that for this episode. Uh, yeah, no, people will uh, sometimes hit us up on Twitter and ask if we're going to watch the pay-per-views. It's like, no, no, th there's a big difference between an hour and a half of angles and three <laughs> straight hours of wrestling. <laughs> it's right. a very different thing to, to partake. But that sort of sets the stage for where you guys were at uh, when this particular episode aired. Let's look at what was happening uh, in the world at large. Uh, and would you believe it, the day after this Nitro aired, consumer advocate Ralph Nader announced that he would run for president. What do you guys think? Do you think this is going to work out for all of us in the end that Ralph Nader is going to run a third-party uh, bid? I I'm sure that he won't get many votes and it probably won't have a large effect on the election at all. I wrote him in. <laughs> really? 
Yeah. Oh man. See, here's the thing. I was uh, I was like 13 at the time. You voted for Ralph Nader, and Nate voted for Bush. So I, I don't know, even know what to do here. <laughs> you guys are the reasons millennials are so fucking terrible. <laughs> Hey, I'm in Georgia. You know that a vote for Gore would have meant nothing in 2000. Yeah, true, so I might true. have well have done a protest vote to try to help the Green Party get on the ballots, yeah, et cetera. I, but. I was hoping – I was afraid you'd be like, yeah, well, I mean my, my residency was floored at the time, so I figured <laughs> – you know, that would have been the worst. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, uh, but what about you, Nate? Were you ever tempted by Ralph Nader in this 2000 campaign? I, mean, I think there's always a temptation with a credible or at least a slightly credible third-party candidate. I was a little bit tempted by Ralph Nader, even though he kind of reminded me of Columbo. Uh, just the way he looked physically, you know, kind of reminded me of Columbo. So I was, I was a little skeptical about that. But uh, if I knew then what, what, what I, I know now, you would have been out there uh, calling for Al Gore. <laughs> you know, what, if I, I knew then. I wish he had been the the, the, the political Columbo, where at the end of every speech, it's like, oh, one more thing, I got a question about. Then he's yeah, like, he just explains thing. it, and just like solves the entire economic crisis. <laughs> Here's one thing I just need to explain from here. Um, so that's what the world was grappling with. Ralph Nader announcing a third party bid that I'm sure most people thought would have no effect on the direction of the country whatsoever. But switching over to the pop charts. Nate, it's been a while since you and I have looked at uh, the number one single. Last time we looked at it, it was Lone Star's Amazed. And I think you and I would both kind of agree that what's so interesting about the pop charts this time period is how how schizophrenic it can be, how it isn't just one genre. Like you can go from a hip-hop song to a country song to a pop song just all around. You know, It can be uh, Soundgarden one week and uh, Santana another. Well, that kind of all changes this week when a dynasty – is, is is kind of crowned when Destiny's Child has their second number one album with Say My Name. This hit hard, and this was at every dance. You would hear it. Every, it was on everyone's <laughs> Walkman. This, this was... A jam. This is the first song I think that we've talked about that I can say like it. It hit hard for me and my group of friends uh, at this time period. I I don't know if I even knew that song at that time. Really? I mean, I was uh, you know college radio guy and 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 going to you know see like indie rock and punk bands and stuff every night. So like. I, I, it took me a while to even know what that song was. I think I learned it through karaoke, perhaps. Yeah, you're in, you're in Athens, so you're probably just listening to like uh, you know of Montreal and Eels all the time, right? <laughs> yeah, Neutral Milk Hotel and all the Elephant Six bands and all that. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, for me, man, this was this was the beginning of something big, and and you got to look at Destiny Child at this time period. They had gone to the second album, you know, they left behind Wyclef Jean, mm-hmm. which is probably a good idea in life as well as music. They, I think they got a new member. I want to say they they had a membership change between the first record and the second record. Uh, but of course, as long as you've got Beyonce, it's it's kind of, you know, and anybody else will do. Yeah. You just need three stiffs next to Beyonce and you've got a group. Uh, <laughs> but this particular song, like it's not my favorite Destiny Child song. Uh, that would probably be Bugaboo, which I know you love, Brian. We're Mann. not going back to this. We're uh, not going back to this. <laughs> uh, either, either Bugaboo or uh, uh, Bills, Bills, Bills. That was a good song. Bills was their first uh, you, uh, number one single, yeah. Yeah. Can you pay my bills? Can you pay my telephone bills? It, it, it registered. Like, it was on my radar. Like, I wasn't the hugest 
Destiny Child fan. I think at this time, 2000, I probably was still hanging on to, uh, you know, hope that Janet Jackson would have, would have a great comeback. I was probably listening to more Mary J. Blige at the time. Uh, but but even then, you know, you knew if Destiny's Child wasn't going to be a big thing, Beyonce definitely had uh, some staying power. Yeah, I think things are going to work out just fine for Beyonce. We'll see in the years to come. <laughs> but uh, she's off to a good start here in uh, March of 2000. But that's it. We've uh, set the page. We know where we were at in the year 2000. Now let's see where Nitro was at in the year 2000. We don't usually talk about pay-per-view buy rate numbers here, but it is important for the sake of uh, what would happen on this episode and falling out from it. So the main event of the previous years, Uncensored, was also Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair. So we're able to compare year to year how well the same attraction drew. So a year before this, Hogan and Flair drew a 1.1 buy rate on pay-per-view. One year later, what do you guys think it drew on pay-per-view? <laughs> Whew. Uh, was it even half? Yeah, I was like, it's uh, I go point seven. <laughs> half would be generous. So, so Nate, you're 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 saying point seven. Garrett, what do you think? What do you think? Uncensored two thousand drew. Having seen the recap at the beginning of this nitro, uh, let's uh, let's say a point four. Uncensored two thousand drew a buy rate of point one three, a ninety percent decrease in one year uh. in pay per view business. So, yeah, I think it's fair to say the company is not in good shape as we head into this particular episode. We're getting ready to break some heads as Uncensored 2000. So the episode starts with a proper recap of Uncensored, and boy, did a lot of stuff happen on the show. The Harris Boys won the tag titles. Sting defeated Lex. Chris Candido made an unadvertised debut. Hogan beat Flair, and Sid Vicious retained his title. And earlier today, as world champion Sid Vicious arrived at the O'Connell Center, The show proper starts with footage from earlier today as Sid is shown walking through a crowd of cheering fans arriving at the building. Inside the arena, Tony welcomes us to Gainesville, Florida for tonight's Nitro. Mean Gene is already in the ring at the top of the show and he brings out Sid for an interview. Sid begins things with a folksy idiom that somehow involved a pig wearing a purple bow tie. I didn't quite understand this at all. (laughs) This then brings out Jared who says he's still not done with Sid. Jeff says he'd be the world champion if it weren't for Hogan's interference. Jared wants another shot, but he wants it to earn the shot. So Jarrett proposes a title match, and if Jarrett wins, he gets another shot at the title. However, if Sid wins, Jeff will never ask for another title shot ever again. Jarrett then introduces his partner for tonight's tag team match, Scott Steiner, who has a piece of tape over his mouth reading Censored. Steiner rips the tape off and says that WCW can't censor him and Sid can't stop him. Sid accepts the challenge and says that there are at least 20 people backstage that would love to help him. Yeah, right, who? Who's going to be that dumb? Well, slap ass, bring them on. I say, let's hit the music! Hogan's music is now playing, and Sid is just hulking up, and he's he's marking out like a fucking five-year-old in the ring. He drops to his knees and is begging <laughs> Hogan to be his tag partner, really putting over his monster status. Hogan says that Sid is the man to get WCW back on track, I guess Hogan being the guy who took them off track, and Hogan agrees, and our main event is set. Oh, there's, there's so much to unpack here. First of all, we have the, the pig uh, story from Sid, which uh, brought back shades of John McCain and Sarah Palin <laughs> from the 2008 presidential <laughs> campaign. <laughs> he put lipstick on a pig and whatnot. I don't know if that's what Sid was going for, if this was another 
uh, idiom about pigs. But then we have, like you said, the Scott Steiner uh, reveal, which was a surprise to me because I had forgotten at this point that Steiner had come back to Jared. You know, I thought we were fully, you know, Nashville World Order NWO here with, with just Jeff and the Harrises. I didn't know Scott came back to him. Uh, so that was a surprise. Uh, and then we had some classic Scott Steiner promoing, which uh, is great and terrible at the same time. So, Yeah, like I I'd forgot that the Harris brothers were ever in a version <laughs> of the NWO, you know, like I, I remember the, the, the NWO 2000 that lasted for like one week with Nash and Hall mm-hmm. and, and Bret Hart and Jeff Jarrett. But bringing in, you know, the Nazi twins, I completely forgot about that. I uh, I really liked uh, one of Mean Gene's lines at the very beginning where uh, he said – when Sid came out, uh, we've got a hunk here that is impressing these fans at ringside tonight. <laughs> um, I think Mean Gene is very good at uh, being able to ascertain and, and rate the hunkiness of professional wrestlers. <laughs> I think it's an underrated skill of his. Um, but yeah, Scott Steiner is obviously – I mean we know what comes after this. We know that Scott Steiner became a legitimate main event star at a point when WCW didn't really have anyone else to fill that role. So seeing him sort of just be an afterthought here it was really surprising. And uh, yeah, I, I had no memory of him being connected with the Harris brothers or Jarrett like this in any way whatsoever. Well, you mentioned that you forgot the Harris brothers with the NWO. I feel like they forgot as well. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Nate. <laughs> I don't think they've worn the T-shirt since they're told they're giving it to. The, it's almost as if they were aware that they're not worthy of being in this group because they're just wearing black <laughs> T-shirts all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's funny because I think that's the subconscious of uh, Big Ron and Heavy D coming out. You know, they they're like we're not fit to wear these sweet black and silver t-shirts. Uh, I thought that was funny, but also with, with Hogan, man, this was the first, but it would not be the last time during this show where I, I actively began to dislike Hulk Hogan. Like I thought leading up to this, the, the episodes that we've seen the last few weeks, Brian, with the Yappa Pie stuff, it was okay. It, it did what it had to do. And it was, it was not as offensive. I, I don't think as this, where, Hulk Hogan is actively coming out and upstaging your world heavyweight champion. Unfortunately, we're never really going to be able to spoiler guys. We're able to see this feud really uh, <laughs> come to term because of what will happen in this company in the next couple of weeks. But it is interesting. Like honestly, the closest thing I can compare this to is that Hulk Hogan is Roman Reigns here. The announcers are going over the top to tell us this guy's a babyface, and he's not acting like one. And the crowd's not really getting behind him. And it just yeah. it, it was very reminiscent of what we're watching on TV currently. I mean, historically, look back at the 80s. Hogan, he often acted like a bad guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he even at the, the, the peak of Hulkamania, you know, he would uh, steal the spotlight from his friend. He would not be there when his friend needed him. He was a, kind of a bad guy. And yet, for some reason, kids ate him up at the time. <laughs> I mean, this is sort of in keeping with, like, I think what Hogan had been for most of his career. And in fact, this entire show, it's like you get one of the two or three classic 80s Hulk Hogan storylines condensed into like a single episode Mm. of a TV show, you know? So we go to ringside where the announcers run down the results from last night before revealing that Sting will return to action tonight against Flair. Sting will wrestle here tonight here on WCW Monday Nitro against the nature boy Ric Flair. We then get a graphic for Spring Breakout, which is telling us the details that we need to make sure that we pick up our wristbands for the day's events, including a free Better Than Ezra concert the night before. <laughs> Do you guys remember Better Than Ezra? And how past their prime were they in the year 2000? A good four years or so, yeah. maybe five. What, what was better? Because when I saw this, I was thinking of uh, was the song Found Out About You. Was that Better Than Ezra? 
Their like, big what? hit was uh, their big hit was good. Yeah. Whoa, it was good. Ah, okay. Living okay. with you, that one. Yeah. They had okay. a couple other minor hits. So found out about you might have been one, but I feel like that. Might I think be that I, I think that's a Gin Blossom song. Yeah, Gin Blossoms. Yeah. Yes, I was mixing up my my mid nineties, late nineties alternative groups. <laughs> that is that is completely forgivable and, and actually expected um, with all those interchangeable nineties alt rock bands. Uh, but but so. no, it, like in in two thousand. Let alone 2017, that would not uh, entice me to go to this spring breakout. So, yes, I, I think what we said about these things, Brian, the past few weeks and months is, you know, while it, it every attempt might not uh, be a hit, at least, you know, we got to give them credit for trying something outside of the box. Yeah, I mean, like we just joked about better than Ezra, but I mean... WWE had Kid Rock at WrestleMania in 2009, so I mean it's <laughs> timeliness is not always uh, on the on the wrestling promoter's mind when it comes to music. Uh, this is followed by Ricky at the final Nitro party in Tallahassee, and I got to say honestly, guys, I was a little disappointed by this one. Uh, the entire night, they're not really shooting the angles they were before. Ricky's clearly over this. He doesn't want to see Disco Inferno ever again, and I think he maybe spent 10 minutes at this uh, bar in, in Tallahassee. Well, I, I was thinking that like this would be the main event of these Nitro parties because, uh, Garrett, you know, if you hadn't seen the episodes prior to this, you know, we'd been to Ohio State. We'd been to Brown for some reason. <laughs> we'd been to reason. an Ivy League school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so you figure if anybody is going to – accentuate the nitro party it's gonna be florida state but yeah. yeah this this felt very uh timid by nitro party standards they're all just exhausted and uh i mean ricky rackman i i forgot that guy ever was even affiliated with wcw i think of him as you know the headbangers ball guy from from mtv so it was it was crazy to to see him having to act like he cared about any of the stuff happening around him <laughs> Um, with three count and the Nitro Girls and everything. Yeah, he was like, "We got Disco over here. He's doing the Disco dance, and over here, uh, they're teaching people the three count dance." And it's like, there, "There's no three count dance. Like, none of these things exist." <laughs> <laughs> uh, backstage, Mean Gene interviews a returning Chavo Guerrero Jr. Chavo is pissed that he wasn't in the cruiserweight title uh, tournament, but it's because he was broke. He says he hasn't been on TV because he's been trying to make money, I guess forgetting that showing up to work is the easiest way to do that. <laughs> Chavo then distracts Gene and swipes his wallet. Uh, nothing. What are you talking well, about? Thanks for your time, Gene. I'll see you later. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Chavo Guerrero. Nice kid. Did he steal Gene's wallet, Tony? I believe he did. Chavo was great here. And it's been a long time since I've actually – since we've seen like just a fun character cutting a fun promo, Nate, like – Within the world of WCW, like the artist is maybe the funnest character we've seen, but now we got Chavo Guerrero and he's just showing up with a, a bolt of energy. Yeah, I've, I've always been a fan of Chavo. You know, and back in 2000, I was I was on the Chavo train, and this is a guy that to me has been, had had an uneven career because I think he's always given 100, percent but the positions he's been placed in, you mm. know, whether you're talking about Crazy Chavo with Pepe the Horse or uh, Kerwin White, the golfer in the WWE, like the the creative doesn't always support his effort, but I've always been a fan of Chavo. Back in the arena, the artist and Paisley are out to do commentary, so the artist can scout two of his opponents, Lash LaRue and Chris Candino. Before the match, Candino grabs a mic and says he's a great wrestler who doesn't need a gimmick, a phrase, or a trashy valet. Remember that when Sonny shows up in a few weeks. Lash is hurt enough, though, so he dropkicks Candido in the back of the head. You might be shocked to hear this, but uh, 
throughout, this was actually a pretty good segment. These two had a good match on commentary. Paisley's, like, putting both guys over. Uh, Lash and Candido, they've got, like, really good chemistry, I was surprised. Uh, Chris hits a delayed vertical suplex, but he only gets a two count. Candido then whips Lash into the corner, attempts a splash, but Lash moves. Lash lands some punches, does a split, and then knocks Candido down. Lash goes to the top, but Candido stumbles onto the ropes, knocking him down. This allows Candino to deliver a superplex followed by a diving headbutt for the win. I did think it was weird that we introduced Chavo, uh, and then we're following up with a Cruiserweight segment that he's not involved with at all. But besides that, I thought, uh, all things considered, by the standards of the time, this was maybe the best segment on the show. Yeah, it was a, you know, it was a fine match. Lash LaRue was a guy that, among my friends, we always really liked him for some reason. Um, <laughs> and so it was cool to see him you know, have a decent little match here with Candido. I liked how when they brought Candido back, he's doing this gimmick as the hardworking guy who grew up for nothing and earned everything he has. And at first, it makes you, you know, like, for, like him and want to root for him. But he keeps going, and it becomes more and more absurd to where eventually he won a 10-man handicap match in Japan <laughs> against Anoki and, yeah. and, and uh, Dr. Death and Giant Baba and all this. I think that was Madden, uh, Mark Madden, the announcer, adding those details in. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, it was a good debut for Candido. It was a fine match, and it got his character over in a way that was almost a little bit subtle. Uh, well, first of all, uh, Brother Garrett, you never should apologize for liking the Raging Cajun Lash LaRue. That, that <laughs> man is a, a national treasure, and, and uh, we respect that man up here on the sideline of hate. But uh, with Chris Candido, this was a guy I remember in 2000 being excited about his debut because this was a guy that I was a fan of from – his ECW work, uh, I mean, his WWF stuff was okay, but his work in ECW was really strong. And I thought this was kind of that next wave of superstars that could energize the product. You know, guys like Vampiro and, and Booker, and you throw Candido in that mix. Uh, so this is a great start for him. Unfortunately, you know, knowing history, uh, this this might be the highlight of the Chris Candido run. <laughs> Backstage, Lodi and Lane uh, continue to get screen time for some reason. I don't know why we're still dedicating time to these guys, especially considering they did nothing else on the show besides this segment. Miss Hancock approaches them, and Lane asks her about the new tag team that she's managing. Hancock says she found Latin America's most desirable men, Los Fabulosos, and she'll be bringing them to Thunder. Uh, which, of course, is code for we will never see this because it's happening on Thunder. <laughs> If I'm not mistaken, Nate, this might be the last time we see any of these guys in these gimmicks because I don't think they're on the next week's episode. Ooh, that, that might be the case. But I, I do think you answered your own question, Brian, when you said, why do we keep seeing Lenny and Lodi? The answer is because Lenny and Lodi are the precursors to Miss Hancock. Yes. They are the, the silver surfer to her Galactus. They are, the, they are Stacey Keebler's <laughs> heralds. <laughs> We go back to the arena, and Fit Finley comes out, and he is the first of many guys on the show who will ditch his cast. Uh, he's just not wearing one anymore. Uh, the gimmick match is over. He's just not going to put it on anymore. It's it's dumb. So there must be something in the WCW water that's curing everyone on this evening. Fit's opponent for tonight is Laparka, who gets a mic and cuts a promo. Or I should say someone else cuts a promo for him. Uh, it's that hilarious wrestling thing where a non-English-speaking performer is humiliated for having the audacity uh, for being born in another country uh, because someone else backstage is cutting a promo for him. And uh, do you guys know whose uh, voice this was? Was it Kevin Sullivan? It was not Kevin Sullivan. Uh, was it? I'm going to go Black Scorpion Ole Anderson yeah. for 200. <laughs> that was my next guess. Well, when you think of offensive non-wrestlers in WCW in the year 2000, you can only think of one man, Ed Ferrara. Yes, Oklahoma himself was the Phantom LaParca voice. 
Skull, skull, captain's in the his house. When you scope the chair, you don't need the fall one one. It's the one fall one fall. One for me and one for my homies. Finley is hurt enough though, and he attacks Laparka to start the match. Finley gets Laparka up into a fireman's carry and drops him neck first onto the ropes. On commentary, Mark Madden says that Laparka sounded like a member of Wu Tang. And he clarifies this by saying, quote, he sounds like an urban city ghetto type guy. Mm. Yeah. Sounds like a member of Wu-Tang Clan, quite, quite frankly. Like an urban city ghetto type guy. Oh, Mark Madness, if I needed any more reasons to dislike <laughs> his commentary on these episodes of Nitro. Oh, it, I don't know, like, I don't know what, what he was going for there. Like, is he, because if he was trying to be the, the hip guy that, like the the current guy, the guy that's with it, that doesn't uh, build to his to his case. Uh, but if he's just trying to be the obnoxious heel commentator, I don't think a large percentage of this audience knows who Wu Tang is, even in the year two thousand. So I think he failed on either attempt. Yeah, it's weird because I was going to give him credit for dropping the sex offender element, but then he replaces it with racism. So, like, which is a better – which is be- – I'm honestly asking, which is better, sex offender Mark Madden or racist Mark Madden? Uh, I think I'd rather have racist Mark Madden. Okay. Honestly. I think I'd rather have racist commentator Mark Madden <laughs> than Mark Madden who is talking about going to three-count concerts to uh, holler at young women. Yeah. <laughs> Between that bit of commentary and the the Lenny and Lodi and Ms. Hancock uh, vignette, which had you know so much homophobia and misogyny and sexism <laughs> in it, like if this episode aired like brand new today, <laughs> it would fuel uh, internet websites for a good week or so. I think, in terms of having content to write to to, to write about, yeah. I think this would be Breitbart's first streaming series. Would be WCW Nitro. <laughs> <laughs> In the ring, Laparka must have heard Madden's casual racism and tried to one-up him by doing a crane karate pose. Game recognizes game as tough-as-nails brawler Fit Finley does one in return. Laparka then charges Finley, who ducks and counters with a fireman's carry into a forward roll, kind of like a, a Mr. Anderson's mic check, and he gets the win. Uh, Finley throws Laparka a mic, who throws it away. I, it, this did not light the world on fire, but it was a quick rehab win for Fit Finley from uh, his loss the night before to, the, to uh, Vampiro. So, yeah, there wasn't a lot to write home here in this match. But, um, again, I mean, by WCW standards, two for two, two clean wins, and we're getting behind the winner. So, a positive up to this point. Can I ask a question here about Finley? Yeah. So, I haven't been watching, obviously, 2000 Nitro in 17 years. So he's wearing camo, which I don't remember. <laughs> was he in the No Limit Soldiers? No. Uh, he. Uh, I love how that's everybody's question about Finley. <laughs> yeah. No, he was. Uh, he and Brian Nobbs were in a tag team. Uh, they were aligned <laughs> along with the dog, who was not on this episode, and, oh, and we no. will never see again, unfortunately. Nate, the dog is done. Yeah, I, I just, I just love it. Like Garrett, you are. I think at least the third or fourth guest <laughs> to make a comment about either Fit Finley or Brian Knobs' colorful camouflage. So, <laughs> like, the streak continues. Uh, Nate, what do you think about this match? Uh, I mean, it, it was it was a nothing match. It was just there pretty much to get Finley uh, some shine back. But to be honest with you, Brian, after the uh, Wu-Tang reference, uh, I was kind of done with this <laughs> particular match. <laughs> Uh, it, it it didn't appeal to me as, as someone living in, a, in an urban inner city environment. 
<laughs> we go backstage where fast friends Booker and Kidman are shown strategizing for their tag team title shot tonight. However, Madden lets us know the only thing worth caring about is Tori Wilson's tits. They are together as a team. They have gelled. They proved it last night and tonight. Never mind them. Look at Tori, for God's sakes. Look at that cleavage. Madden, he's just, guys, Madden's the worst. He's like a guy who takes a joke a little too far and makes everyone else feel dirty by association here. So, we back-to-back segments, Nate. It looks like racist Mark Madden and sex offender Mark Madden, they're both here to stay. We're getting the best of both worlds on the show. <laughs> well, yeah, well, two, two points. One, to be fair, at least Tori Wilson is of age. Yes. There's a way, I think, to do this character and not have it be so offensive or off-putting or creepy. Like Jerry Lawler during the Attitude Era was not my favorite cup of tea as a, as a uh, commentator. Yeah. But the shtick worked for him. Uh, you know, the, eventually there became a time when it didn't. But I think Jerry knew how to kind of toe the line. But I think it also worked because Jerry Lawler was, you know, in his 40s. Yeah, he was like he was the horny old grandpa. Yeah, like Mark Madden, like the, if, if you didn't know about this guy through, you know, his work previous to WCW, he's just this random, youngish, kind of creepy pervert dude that uh, makes references and, and you don't like him. Like he's obnoxious and he's not like the good kind of obnoxious like a Bobby the Brain Heenan was. And so, uh, yeah, I was not a fan of Mark Madden during uh, this run. Yeah, no, he's uh, he's horrible. I mean, he does not fit like the uh, the sense of tradition or legacy that WCW should have. I mean, he's this <laughs> he's a perfect guy for the Russo era because he's this guy from up north coming down and being crude for no reason whatsoever, you know? And there's almost a part of me that thinks maybe this guy would have worked as a manager. Maybe even if you went so far mm. as to make him a commissioner, that could have worked where like he was this like kind of disgusting puppet master. But just having him on commentary and sort of like painting the whole show and like his filth is just is not what we need. Yeah, he well he might have made a really interesting and, and, and effective heel manager, but and this is one of the rare cases where I will give Thunder props. Like, if you look at this show, when you've got Tony and Madden, and then you look at Thunder, where you've got the Professor Mike Tanay and Bobby Heenan. Yeah. Like, I, I think I'd rather watch Thunder just for the commentary. Oh, I would maybe just, like, play the audio of Thunder under Nitro and see, just hopefully yeah. it'll match up occasionally, <laughs> like Dark Side of the Moon and Wizard of Oz. <laughs> <laughs> Elsewhere, Vampiro is bathed in green light, cutting a Bray Wyatt promo about the broken arm that Lex Luger gave him. Vamp then decides to remove his cast in the manner that most doctors recommend by slamming his arm repeatedly against a brick wall and ripping it off. He's taking his cast off. He's trying to break it right off his hand, and I'm, I'm not so sure that hand is completely healed. The announcer stated that Vampiro may have rebroken his arm. Then, the perfect end to this ridiculous segment, Vampiro says, That may not have been the smartest thing I've ever done. This definitely might not be the smartest thing I've ever done. Nate, this was mm-hmm. TNA levels of stupid, this segment. <laughs> Vampiro, usually uh, a great source of praise here. Can't say anything positive about this one, though. No, I mean, to be fair, though, to Vamp, maybe he had witnessed that Hogan promo from a few weeks earlier. Yep. And figured, hey, if, if that guy is doing this stupidity and he's a main eventer, maybe I can do this to elevate myself on the card. But, yes, not, not the best use of uh, one Vampiro this particular week. <laughs> we then get still images from Bigelow and the Wall from Uncensored, uh, but, you know, less of that, the better. Mean Gene is in the ring, the real workhorse of the evening, and he calls out David Flair and Daphne. David Flair in a hard collar sets up a table at ringside before jumping in the ring. Flair calls out the Wall and rips off his neck brace, which is a running theme for the night, guys, just uh, blatantly ignoring medical uh, <laughs> assistance. <laughs> Gene flees the ring as the Wall makes his way down. 
The wall wastes no time, grabbing Flair by the neck. However, rather than chokeslam David, the wall whispers something in his ear, lost in translation style, and lets him go. It's a trap, though, because the wall attacks David as soon as his back is turned. The wall takes Flair out onto the apron, but Daphne sprays him with a fire extinguisher. However, wall just no-sells it. The fire extinguisher has no effect on the big man, and he chokeslams... And he chokeslams Flair through the table on the floor. Flair then gets stretchered out, and we have another big man wall segment. What a maniac! What a monster Bam Bam Bigelow created in the wall! Again, I think we've established several times on the show, the wall maybe is not the guy to get this push. <laughs> this is still a, a, another in-ring segment that achieved what it set out to do. So by the standards of WCW 2000, glass half full, not a failure in my book. But the thing with the wall, I know, I know he's called that because he came in with Berlin as his muscle. But now he's just like a guy in a short sleeve dress shirt with a tie. What's his character? What's his gimmick? He's just a big guy who's killing Ric Flair's son over and over for no good reason, right? That is a good point. Um, they haven't really fleshed out this character. Having a necktie on really kind of uh, takes you back. Like it, <laughs> it, it seems to suggest some level of civility, but he's also like just this nameless monster. Oh, maybe, maybe give him like an Al Bundy backstory, like he was a great high school <laughs> athlete, uh, like Chet the Wall, Kaminsky. Uh, he scored four touchdowns in high school. Now that I think about it, I've just figured out a way to completely kill the Wall's allure and 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 monstrous appeal. Close your eyes for a second and imagine the Wall backstage looking in a mirror, tying a tie. <laughs> Doesn't that ruin? <laughs> Doesn't that ruin anything about this guy? Because either he's doing that or someone else is tying a tie for him. Either way, it really ruins it. Braun Strowman, there's a reason this guy doesn't come out wearing a button-down shirt. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's because he's got the nipple rings, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> uh, but but here's the thing, Brian. Like, you mentioned this push is is great, but it might be wasted on the wall. I agree to some point, but I, I do think you could get, get away with this push if we weren't coupling him with David Flair. Because now you've got two guys that, that kind of need reclamation, and neither one is helping each other. And so I think David Flair with somebody else might have worked. Again, you still got to deal with the limitations of David Flair. Uh, and the wall, if he were, you know, if this whole thing were the wall trying to mess with Norman Smiley for, for just a, a name. I think that might be somewhat better just because of the people involved. But to have the wall and David Flair, it, it's not a good equation. Do you want to know who the wall was being built up for at this time? Don't say Tank Abbott. <laughs> the wall was being built up for Hulk Hogan. <laughs> when we get to the backstage issues, uh, they then decided to blow that feud off uh, a week later <laughs> at Spring Breakout. So we'll get there uh, in a week's time. So uh, your wish will be fulfilled. He is going to go from David Flair to Hulk Hogan in seven days. <laughs> <laughs> Back from break, Tony attempts to throw to a recap of the David Flair angle, but a hype package for Luger and Van Vero plays instead. It's our Wolverine boot stomp of the night. I guess it's not. Total package will face Van Vero. The recap of the David Flair segment eventually plays, followed by the segue of the decade by Tony Schiavone. We thought we'd give you something pleasant to look at to get that horrific scene out of your head. So we've come up with this, fans, because that was just carnage at its worst. We've come up with the WCW magazine, the brand new edition available now, and on the inside, the centerfold is of Tori Wilson. This centerfold transitions perfectly to Tori Wilson accompanying Booker T and Kidman to the ring for their tag title shot against the Harris twins who won the titles the previous night from the Mamelukes. 
Booker starts the match off and quickly lands a Harlem sidekick, an axe kick, and the spin rooney On commentary, Madden says the NWO only needs to win Sid's gold belt and they'll hold all the titles in WCW. Really burying the cruiserweight and hardcore titles there, Madden. <laughs> Kidman tags in and finds himself on the receiving end of the shittiest Tilt-A-Whirl slam I've ever seen. I didn't know you could fuck up a Tilt-A-Whirl slam. Listeners, that's a gift request. I need to see this Tilt-A-Whirl slam in my feed soon. <laughs> Kidman makes a comeback with a dropkick and dives to tag in Booker. Booker gets in and attempts a book in, but somehow, whichever Harris brother he's with, somehow fucked up this bump. Second gift request, guys. I don't understand how these guys are fucking up basic moves. Everyone enters the ring, and Kidman lands a bulldog to one of the two H's. Booker goes to the top, but the other H hits Booker with a tag team title belt for the DQ. Um, I have zero clue how anyone backstage could watch this match and think the Harris brothers should be champs of anything. <laughs> After the bell, Tori jumps on one of the H's. He gets in her face, and then Kidman uh, runs over with a chair. Both H's and flee to end the segment. Um, the Harris is fucking sucked in this match, guys. <laughs> and I get that we're building up Booker and Kidman, but just like I don't see it in them as a team, if that makes sense. Uh, I, I think there's a way to do kind of the odd couple, The if we're going to use the movie comparison. There's a way to do Danny Glover and Mel Gibson. You know, there's a way to do that and have it work, even if you don't picture these guys as best buddies. Uh, you know, they, they can work together. And then eventually, you know, you can have the feud come out of it. But uh, I I think... There's something with these matches. Like Kidman and Booker always work hard, but it doesn't always add up because of who they've been in there with. Whether you're talking about the Harrises or the Mama Lukes or Harlem Heat 2000, like it feels like they're doing a lot of heavy lifting for this tag team division that is saddled by just bad, bad teams that that they have to work with. I mean, they're both super athletic, and, and the audience is visibly way more into them, especially Booker, than almost anything else on the show. I mean, you could tell Booker was a star waiting to happen. Um, but yeah, they don't look good together. And the Harrises, I, I feel like both of them had to take the bookend at one point, and neither one of them could do it. Yeah. And it's like, do they not know how to jump and fall? Or is it that they're <laughs> intentionally trying to make Booker look bad? Because that was such a thing that happened often back in WCW, where guys just wanted to make the younger guys look bad for whatever reason. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it, they could have been a solid team, despite you know the... The weird, um, the weirdness of seeing them together, but I think uh, it was just the wrong place at the wrong time with the other teams they had to work with. Backstage, the Mamelukes get in Disco's face for not getting them a tag team title rematch. The Mamelukes rough Disco up and tell him to get them the rematch or they're done. And I'm not the one that lost you guys. Get out of here. That's it, John. I can't stand him no more. He's not hanging with us no more. He's done. I'm going to take care of this once and for all. Let's get out of here. We go back to the ring where Luger makes his lengthy total package pose down intro as Tony reminds us that no outside bottles will be allowed at spring breakout. Luger gets on the mic and demands that Vampiro come out. Vamp's music hits, but there's no Vampiro. Vampiro's pyro then goes off, and Vampiro is suddenly behind Luger in the ring. Vampiro hits Luger with kicks, and the bell rings. Uh, this match, guys, was like watching The Matrix, because these two were just moving at completely different speeds. Uh, Vamp's hitting <laughs> enziguris and chops, and he clotheslines, and all Luger can do is just like sluggishly sell and like try to keep up. Uh, Vampiro gets Luger in the corner for a top-rope Frankensteiner, but Luger hits a low blow and pushes Vamp off. Luger does some more power moves and uh, kicks in the corner. 
By this point, Luger has pretty much done every move that he knows, so the two men then brawl around the ring. Back in the ring, Luger hits a power slam and calls for the torture rack. Vamp, though, flips out of it and hits several spin kicks. The crowd is just getting incredibly hot for Vamp's uh, offense. Uh, Garrett, you mentioned that you know Booker was over. I think Vamp was even more over. Uh, there's yeah. a there's a diving clothesline off the top rope uh, that gets a big reaction. Vampiro goes for a cover, but it's only good enough for a two. The crowd actually thought this could have been uh, the end of the match. Then the air is just completely let out of the balloon as Ric Flair comes down and everyone knows what's next. Vamp hits a crossbody off the top, then elbows Flair off the apron, then hits a standing sidekick to Luger, a really impressive sequence there from Vamp. Rick distracts the ref, which allows Luger to hit Vampiro with a baseball bat, and this is followed by a torture rack, and Vampiro submits. Team Package then beats down Vamp until Sting makes the save. Um, would it have really killed them to beat Luger here, especially <laughs> considering the post-match? Why did Luger need to win this match? This, this made no sense. It's so crazy. Like We're trying to get behind Vamp, but he's always like the damsel in distress for Sid Vicious, or he's losing to Jeff Jarrett. Like, why can't we actually give this guy a few wins and and act as though he's something big? Because the crowd's clearly getting into this guy. Yeah, they're very schizophrenic with Vampiro, you know, because we see week after week. They're obviously invested in the guy, but they don't seem to be willing to go that last step to putting him over some of the older guys, some of the established stars. And... It's one of the hallmarks of these shows that we've been reviewing. You know, whether you're talking about Booker T, Billy Kidman, Vampiro, uh, some of the cruiserweight guys, you know, Kaz Hayashi, uh, Three Count. You know, they give the young guys something, but they're not fully ready to turn the, turn the keys to the car over to them. And that's why we're stuck with Hulk Hogan and Sid Vicious and people like that. Ric Flair, you know, as much as I love Ric Flair, Ric Flair should not be, you know, one of your top main eventers at this time period. So, uh, yeah, Vampiro was good as always in this match, but unfortunately you could see kind of the level of faith the company has in him. They, they're, they're willing to go, you know, a little bit of the ways, but not really fully commit to uh, making him a top guy. And they're doing this weird thing with Luger. I, this whole episode, even though I must have watched it when it aired, it feels like a weird like alternate reality WCW that I have no memory of because he's just the total package. They never mm. call him Lex Luger. They never say the name that he was exclusively known by for like 15 years at that point. It's always just his nickname is now his name. But like that, the whole Booker Kidman tag team, I had no memory of that. This entire <laughs> show, it's like weird. What alien universe was this thing like beamed in from, you know? <laughs> Mean Gene enters the NWO Hospitality Suite, which is uh, back to looking like a legit clubhouse now that Steiner is back. I guess he was the one in charge of accommodations all this time. (laughs) Jarrett says the man with all the stroke will be leaving the ring with a title shot. Steiner says the only reason Hogan was world champion in the NWO was because he had guys like him watching his back. Hulk Hogan, you want to play a piece of me? Let me give you a piece of information. The only reason you were world champion when you were in the NWO because guys like me watching your back. Well, tonight, I'm going to prove to you that I'm the man with the largest arms in the world, that I'm a genetic freak, and I'm going to kick your ass, and there ain't a damn thing you can do about it. I was confused, like, like I said, you know, when I first saw Steiner come out because I had thought that once they did the deal with Jarrett, you know, turning on Scott Hall and turning on Kevin Nash, that Steiner, you know, fell right in line with that. So when, you know, we just see him being a team player and being subservient even to Jarrett in this uh, iteration of the NWO, it, it didn't make sense. And, and it, 
he's got the memory and the you know continuity in his brain to be mad at Hulk Hogan, and that was years ago. Why can't he think about what Jeff Jarrett did a month ago? I don't know. Maybe Steiner had a long play to you know dethrone Jarrett for the belt, thinking Jarrett mm. was like an easier target than Sid would have been. But because they rebooted everything six or seven days later, we never got to see that play. Oh, out. so so you're saying Scott Steiner was the Randy Orton yeah. of 2000? Like he eventually he was going to burn down Jeff Jarrett's townhouse? Pretty much, yeah. Garrett's brought up a good idea here, Nate. Uh, as listeners of our show know, we, you and I we love fantasy booking and alternate reality booking what if after the relaunch happens what if we just keep booking those existing storylines like what if we just we keep booking sid versus hogan after the the feud gets dropped in two weeks as long as we have we have a uh, commissioner arn anderson i'm down for it <laughs> you're gonna keep it 2000 more than 2000 captain <laughs> back at tallahassee state ricky is partying with disco and three count Ricky says that he'll be hosting a special backstage telecast of, on WCW.com during next week's spring breakout. Now, Nate, before you ask, I was not able to find this footage. <laughs> like, there, there's so much there, man, with Ricky Rackman. Like, we need the, the ESPN 30 for 30. Uh, <laughs> the, the musical people that got involved with Nitro, whether you're talking about Ricky Rackman or DJ Rand, Master P. Like, we need these stories. Uh, ICP, Misfits. Oh, man. <laughs> The Nitro Girls dance as Tony attempts to plug next week's Nitro, but Madden yells at him for doing his job while boobs are on screen. As we bring you Money Nitro next Monday here on the Voluptuous. Tony, Tony, I'm trying to watch the girls. Could you simmer down a little bit, maybe pipe down for one second? Mean Gene is seen once again interviewing a co-worker as Dustin Rhodes brags about driving a stake through Terry Funk's heart at Uncensored. Dustin says he's tired of the old guys like Hogan, DDP, Flair, and Piper holding him down. And the first one on his list is his opponent tonight, Kurt Henning. Tony throws to footage of a press conference that was held the previous night after Uncensored. Sid is shown behind a podium surrounded by more press than there are wrestlers on this roster. The amount of coverage that they received in Miami, Florida was kind of ridiculous. Mr. Vicious, yes. were you concerned about Jeff Jarrett's surprise for you tonight? No, I'm going to say no, I wasn't, because I've been dealing with Jeff Jarrett and NWO for over six months now, and anything they do did not surprise me at all. Sid is then asked what's next for him. Before he can answer, in comes hot dog Hulk Hogan to steal his thunder. Hey! Hey! First off, congratulations. And what's next? is he's going to remain the WCW Heavyweight Champion. Thank you very much. Hogan tries to leave, but he is asked about his match with Flair. Sid is clearly getting aggravated that Hogan is hogging the spotlight. Hogan uh, then leaves as a reporter yells out, will there ever be anyone as good as you? <laughs> like I said, this is a little outside of the norm for Nitro. Uh, they don't often show uh, after the Bell press conferences. But I thought this was actually a decent way to tease what was to come so, yeah, I wish this had been given a little more time to build, but this segment, isolated as is, I thought was a good way to sort of plant the seeds for something that should probably happen two months down the line, not an hour down the line. But still, I thought a good segment. My, my biggest goal in my career is to get invited to a press conference exactly like that. <laughs> um, I love – like New Japan does these. I love WWE. A couple years ago, they had a few, I think, after the big pay-per-views on the network where they would have the guys come out and sit in front of like the – like it's an NBA press conference after a playoff mm-hmm. game or whatever. I love when wrestling companies do this, even when it's as transparently fake as this was <laughs> with like Sid standing there shirtless with like the belt on his shoulder and everything. It's just – like you said, it, it gets to the, uh, the point of the storyline in a way that even though it's obviously fake, it feels somewhat natural for like a sport 
sport, even a fake sport, to have um, happen. And it's uh, it was it was quick and fun and easy and goofy and uh, you know it was very enjoyable. I thought. Yeah, like I've got some issues with the Hogan character and the Sid character in general, but I thought this was a pretty good little angle here. And I know viewers with a keen eye, particularly viewers that are uh, sports heads or fans of sports movies, they will recognize the similarities between this event in the year 2000 and a boxing movie 10 years prior. And of course, we're talking about Rocky Five, because this is the exact same thing. You got the young champ. In this case, it's Sid Vicious. In Rocket Five, it was Tommy Gunn. And he can't escape the shadow of the legend. And every time he goes somewhere, <laughs> nobody wants to talk about Tommy Gunn. They say, when's Rocket coming back? And Tommy Gunn is like, hey, I'm the champion. And so Sid Vicious, as our Tommy Gunn uh, analogy here, our analog for Tommy Gunn, uh, I, I liked it. I, I dug it. I thought Hogan was actually believable in this role because I think that's who Terry Bollea really is. Uh, so yeah, this was an enjoyable segment for me, and uh, brought back fond memories of uh, Rocky Five, with uh, <laughs> which 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 uh, is is always a good thing. Norman Smiley makes his way out, and his opponent for the night is WWE's second favorite bully, Bill DeMott, Hugh Morris. These two start uh, trading uh, wrist locks. Hugh goes for a top rope elbow drop, but misses. So Smiley then does the big wiggle on his downed opponent. Smiley rolls up Hugh, but it's only good enough for a two. Morris then dances and drops an elbow and then another, and then he pins Norman but pulls him up at two. Hugh Morris then power slams Smiley, one, two, and Morris pulls him up again. Morris then hits the No Laughing Matter moonsault. The crew fucks up and starts playing the demon's theme before Hugh even goes for a cover. <laughs> Hugh gets the three count, and the demon then runs out. Hugh then destroys both men. It's clear that we are giving this guy a big push. He just took out a tag team all by his own. Unfortunately, at this point, he then turns to the camera and says a line so bad that it totally kills any heat he might have just gotten in this segment. You didn't get the wiggle, but you got the giggle. <laughs> you didn't get the wiggle, but you got a giggle. Oh, I was always a fan of the Laughing Man humor. It's like, for, like, just as a wrestler, like, let's not talk about him as a human being, uh, but just as a wrestler in the ring, he was somebody that I was always a fan of because uh he was believable as a big guy as a heavyweight but he also like had this move set that it's kind of like a next generation version of bam bam bigelow like a big dude doing things he shouldn't be able to do but uh, i didn't know what they were going for here because the last few weeks brian haven't we been building up norman and the demon they they had a match at uncensored where they beat uh uh lodi and lane yeah i was gonna say they're not gonna capitalize on that Amazing win. I'm assuming they were a Thunder <laughs> exclusive act. That's why we didn't get to see much of them. The demon was huge. Like, I forgot how big that guy, like, like taller than the other two dudes by what looked like a good half a foot. You, you mean size-wise, not, uh, not yeah, over size with the crowd-wise. <laughs> yeah, no one gave a crap about him when he showed up whatsoever. I, I mean, if it wasn't for the kiss makeup, I would have had no idea who the guy was. But I just, I forgot how, you know, how big he was. That's, that's my brilliant insight to this segment. In the arena, Dustin makes his way out as Tony recaps his match with Funk from the night before, and it just has to be heard to be believed. Well, there were a lot of chickens last night, one in the suit and one from the grocery store, but through all of that, there was a bull rope match with Dustin Rhodes and Terry Funk. He finally got rid of the, of the chicken, that one chicken, and then the Funk hit the referee, and then he went to work on Dustin Rhodes. This is when it really broke down. Referee came to 
just in time to see Dustin Rhodes put the cowbell and pile drive Terry Funk on the cowbell and get the win in the bull road match last night at Uncensored. Uh, so much chicken-based uh, antics in this feud, Brian, man. But no, I didn't watch this match. Of course, I, I had to watch uh, or rewatch the, the Yappa Pie strap match for historical context. Uh, but no, th- I, I didn't uh, watch Funk and Rhodes just because the lead-up from what we saw in Nitro has just made me feel sad every time Terry Funk comes on the screen. So I, d- I didn't want to feel sad anymore, Brian. So these two start with a lockup, and Dustin gets the upper hand with a slap in the corner. Uh, the two men trade punches, and Henning gets a running neckbreaker. They then brawl the outside, and Rhodes slams Henning's cast into the steps. Taking a page from Vampiro's playbook, Rhodes tears Henning's cast off, and a DQ is called. Hold on, why is there a DQ? The referee's called the bell. He's over here. He's going to be fine. He's out of control. Who could possibly stop this madman? Could it be Terry Funk, the man he's feuding with? Maybe it's Kurt's friend, Arn Anderson. Nope. Out comes the grandstanding Hulkster for the save. Madden is pissed to see Hogan uh, in yet another segment, while Tony yells, Thank God for Hulk Hogan. Dustin runs off, uh, of course, because how could you stand up to the immortal one? And Hogan and Kurt then celebrate in the ring. Hey, takes Dustin away. Oh, now Kurt has the stamp of approval. Isn't that neat? This really was one of those segments where you could tell this is a show that's being written by a committee of like 10 different people. Maybe the only thing that saved it for me, Brian, was at least there was some continuity between Hogan and Henning because we'd seen them work together over the past few weeks. Uh, But yeah, other than that, I thought that they were they'd gone one step too far in, in trying to hammer this point home. Coming in blind like this, uh, seeing Hogan help Hennig was really weird to me because you think of them as being historical you know, adversaries. Um, I had no idea Hennig was supposed to be a face at all when this match started. I was trying <laughs> to think, wait, is Dustin the face? But the, he was definitely doing a heel promo, so I couldn't tell what was happening in this match mm-hmm. at all. all. All I could think of was that Dustin in his red leather pants and black shirt kind of looked like Shinsuke Nakamura. Do you think yeah. that's where Nakamura got the look from? Because this would have been right when Nakamura was like uh, starting to get big over in Japan for the first time. He's like, you know, doing. Uh, he's about to go into MMA, and maybe he saw those those red pants, and he realized that's that's what I need. That's how I need to refresh my character. Yeah, he needs to be the American Nightmare version 1.0. Another segment, another Mean Gene appearance. Uh, Overland is with World Champion Sid Vicious, who gloats about his title victory the night before. Suddenly, Jimmy Hart walks into the shot, and Sid asks Jimmy to make sure no one is able to interfere in tonight's tag match. Jimmy Hart! Jimmy, thank God you're here. Listen, tonight it's me and Hogan. We're going against Jeff Jarrett and Big Papa Papa. And you know those guys as well as I do. They're up to no good, so I want you to take every precaution you can. Be sure that no one is able to come into that ring and interfere tonight. You got that? You got a big Thanks, man. Thanks. Jimmy Hart, what a guy. Sid is all smiles here, really going over the top to play a capital B baby face. He's kind of telegraphing it, but I sort of liked it. What did you guys think? I was I was a fan of this, man. Like I, There was something about Sid Vicious on this show. And I think it's watching this episode kind of in a vacuum, Brian. Like yeah. if I remove it from everything else that we've watched leading up to this, uh, it, it, it becomes more enjoyable. Uh, because if I try to put it in context and if I try to make it fit within what we've already watched, it – it brings up more questions than answers, but if I just enjoy this as an as a one off episode, I dug what Sid, Sid did. You know, from the opening promo, you know, with with Gene in the ring and when he's on his knees begging Hogan to be his partner and and all this other stuff. Like Sid 
to me was one of the standouts on, on this particular episode of Nitro. And then, I mean, I don't know how much of this version of Sid I could have taken. Uh, so I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad this all ended by the end of the night. But uh, for what it was, it, it was kind of enjoyable. If you contrast it to what we see today with wrestling, there's a there's a bit of a passion to them that you don't see from a lot of promos now. There's yes. like a improvisational element to it. Like you can tell he's not reading off a script. You can tell he's just <laughs> talking off the top of his head. And because he's Sid, what he's saying off the top of his head is pretty much amazing. Um, it doesn't make any sense most of the time, but it's really entertaining. I've always been a huge Sid fan. I, I do think that like – this era of WCW where they took him from being just sort of the random run-in guy that was really over in ECW and that every fan loved to see him just hit a powerbomb out of nowhere and then leave, bringing him into WCW and almost immediately having him beat the internet beloved Chris Benoit for the US title or TV title, I forget which one, and then eventually win the world title. It was definitely a case of WCW pushing him way too far, way harder than he needed to be pushed. But he's still Sid, and he's still pretty entertaining, even when he's awful in the ring. Uh, yet another Mean Gene interview back-to-back here. And if I had to guess, this was probably uh, the silver lining for Nate, as this is Sting's first promo of the year 2000. How many more times, Rick? Well, I guess at least one more tonight, right? I promise you one thing. I'm going to split team package right down the middle. Last night was Lex. Tonight is you. You're like two peas in a pod, but you don't have a prayer in stopping me once I get started. And guess what? I got started last night. It's showtime, clowns. Didn't really say a lot. This wasn't one of his more memorable promos. But first off, I'm just curious, how old do you guys think Sting was turning on this particular day? Mm. Uh, like 39, 40? Yeah, I was going to go 30, 37. He was turning 41 on this day. Hmm. How many times did he hold the TNA title after this, Nate? <laughs> <laughs> and look good while doing it, Brian Man. <laughs> sure, if you, that's what you got to tell yourself. <laughs> but yeah, this was uh, this was when I was able to breathe again. You know, to use a Tony Braxton turn of phrase. Uh, you know, my my long national nightmare was over. Uh, Sting was finally here. You know, this wasn't a terrible run in or. Uh, production dude in a wig or even a credit card commercial. This was Sting, and we were getting Sting and Flair. And I know it's not going to be Sting and Flair from 89, but uh, it's still Sting and Flair. And so, uh, yeah, this this interview wasn't much, if anything, but uh, it, it's good to have Sting back. Yeah, I mean, seeing Sting is always great. I uh, was a huge fan of his return to W or his debut in WWE a couple years ago. But, uh, you know, watching a Nitro without a Flair Sting match would have felt wrong. So I'm really glad you invited me on for one of the 400 or so Nitro episodes that had Flair versus Sting on it. And I'm curious because, like, at this time period, we know who Nate's favorite WCW guy was. Uh, for you, who was your favorite guy? Because I know for me, like, I was always a Goldberg kid. And this was kind of a weird six month period where Goldberg's injured. And so I kind of, like, just sort of went to Sid because I was that's who they were pushing but <laughs> yeah. uh, for you like who who would have been like your like who was the guy you would you were turning into WCW television to see uh, this era Booker T was probably my favorite guy in the company I always liked DDP you know so he was still around so um Goldberg was cool I mean I, I wasn't a massive fan because he wasn't a great wrestler really but as a character and a presence he was almost unbeatable um back then um 
But de- definitely the guys who had like a historic connection with WCW. I did not like Nasher Hall or the NWO. I never mm-hmm. liked them. I always wanted to see them lose. Uh, so here I would have gone with Flair because you know he's yeah. he's sort of the ultimate WCW guy. We haven't really gotten into Nash yet, but it, this has been a, the weird thing about the show is that like I fucking love Kevin Nash as a kid. <laughs> He's a smart mouth, you know, and he like, you know, oh, he's so funny. And like now I watch him like, how the fuck did I ever listen to this guy and laugh a single fucking time? And it, it's weird. I liked Luger a lot, too, when I was young. Like I put Luger up there with Flair and and Sting. But by this era, I hated Luger. I wanted him off my TV. I never wanted to see him again. And maybe it's because he wasn't nearly as good in the ring anymore as those two and, and totally was mailing it in, like visibly mailing it in more than anyone else that I can think of probably from that era. I don't know. I mean, Luger fell from the heights of Sting and Flair to being a dude like Rick Steiner, who I just never wanted to see again. Yeah. <laughs> it is now time for our weekly Tank Abbott squash. As Tank awaits his victim, we cut backstage to find Ming watching his monitor and wanting a piece of Tank. However, did you guys notice one tiny detail in this cutaway here? I did. Ming's alone in a locker room, and there's a 10-year-old boy standing behind him, (laughs) almost as if he would be, like, his bodyguard or something. It was, like, the weirdest thing. (laughs) Who was this kid? Because I looked it up, and this kid was too young to be either Camacho or Tama Tonga, who are Ming's actual kid. Who was this child? What was he doing here? He has another son. He has. I found out he has a 25-year-old son who is 6'8". And 320 pounds, and he's in the New Japan Dojo right now, and it's the perfect age to be that little guy we saw in that locker room 17 years ago. He, I guess, I guess this was his uh, North American wrestling debut then. Yeah, (laughs) I think he he goes by like Hikuleo or something like that right now. This is his name. Not to throw shade, but I, I would venture even at. The tender age of 10 years old, Ming's kid was probably a better in-ring worker than David Flair. <laughs> probably, probably. So we've, we've solved that mystery. We know who this child was. Uh, back in the <laughs> ring, uh, Tank's opponent is the Barbarian, who uh, actually puts up a little bit of a fight, but eventually it ends, as these all do, with a, a right hand to Barbarian. Might have been the weakest right hand we've seen from Tank, to be honest. And Tank wins by knockout. So to be positive here... Um, I at least feel like we're building a little bit with Tank. He is evolving, but it's just crazy that this guy, you know, challenged for the world title two weeks ago, really had the champ, like, against the ropes. If anything, (laughs) this dude's actually been demoted from a world title shot. And it's interesting, and I'm interested to hear Garrett's take on Tank Abbott because that's always something fun when we get to see where our guests were (laughs) with Tank in 2000. But for me, Brian, I... I thought this was, again, you know, kind of like we said with the wall earlier, this was, uh, and, and with Finley, quite frankly, this is a bit of rehab for Tank. Uh, I was also perplexed that the commentators really didn't draw that line or that uh, that parallel between Ming and the Barbarian. Uh, and I, I am not, like you said, this is one of Tank's weakest uh, finishing punches. Like that. That is not saying a lot because I have not liked a single one of Tank's devastating MMA shoot legit punches that have knocked out these men. Like it, it just doesn't oh no no you, you could make a BuzzFeed list of like Tank Abbott's twenty seven weakest punches at this point yeah <laughs> just a list of weak ass gifts. Like at this point in time in two thousand I I had almost no MMA knowledge like my. My complete full experience with UFC was uh, the bar I would go to almost every night in Athens. 
all the guys that worked there like trained in UFC. One of them was Forrest Griffin, actually, mm-hmm. but they used to always have UFC on the TV above the bar. So that that was like my only exposure to MMA at that point in time. So Tank Abbott's name meant nothing to me. And, uh, you know, despite being a fan of fellow burly men with beards, I just could not really get into him at all as a wrestler. I didn't buy into him as this legendary tough guy. And probably my greatest uh, memory of him is as the three count fan, which mm. was kind of funny in a stupid way, I thought. So has that, that happened not, yet? I'm guessing that's, that's yet to come. That, right? That's okay. still coming. But but to be fair, though, uh, Garrett, uh, you know, even though you weren't a, a much of an MMA fan at the time, I'm sure even if you've never heard of Tank Abbott. You had to have heard of that man named Big Al. <laughs> no, who, no, actually, who was Big Al? <laughs> <laughs> How much time we got, Brian? We, we got the archives. It was, uh, it was a dude who apparently was, uh, was one of Tank's bodyguards, and they feuded. So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's okay. that. My entire exposure to UFC at this point was uh, that John Favreau's character on Friends has an ultimate right. fight. That, that, was the, that was all I knew about it. Yeah. For me, this was like kind of a great time to be a wrestling fan and a MMA fan because blockbuster video had the UFC oh, yeah. uh, VHS. Cause I think I've, I was probably still watching VHS back in 2000 and they'd have like the, like UFC's 50 greatest knockouts, UFC's greatest bouts. And so I'd go in and I'd always rent three movies or two games in a movie or two movies in a game. It was always three of something. Uh, and so I'd go in and I'd get, you know, one movie, probably uh, an urban uh, ghetto movie, if you will. <laughs> uh, I'd always get like a mainstream comedy, and I'd always get either a wrestling or an MMA uh, videotape, and, and that was always my routine, like every every Friday, <laughs> and, and it was good times. Now I'm just thinking about you renting an an urban ghetto type movie, <laughs> <laughs> and the guy behind the counter being like, "At this point, you can just buy Belly." I mean, like you you printed <laughs> Belly every week for like ten weeks, <laughs> like Belly Blue Streak, like <laughs> the, the entire Martin Lawrence catalog. <laughs> Yeah, and um, uh, there was a good UFC game on the Dreamcast around this time, actually, yes. like late 2000 or so. Probably on the PlayStation 2 as well, but I played the Dreamcast version. Oh, Dreamcast was so good. Would Tank Has Tank been in a video game, by the way? I don't think he was in that game. So he I'm might sure have been in a maybe WCW Maybe he was in Backyard game. Wrestling or something. I don't yeah. know. I was say, maybe, what was the game that WCW had where there was no ring? Yeah, I don't know if he made it in time for Mayhem, but he's probably in Backstage Assault. Oh, Backstage yeah. Assault, yeah. yeah the, let's have a wrestling game with no ring. Yeah, there's no ring at all. Like that was the that was actually the first wrestling game I didn't buy. I bought every other game that came out, and, th- and then that one came out. I was like, that's that's some bullshit. Why would I want to do? Why would I want to do that? Although to be fair, and to kind of tie this all up in one urban bow, there was a game that came out a couple years later that mm-hmm. did have the whole wrestling game without a ring and did it perfectly, and that was the Def Jam series. Oh, yeah, yeah, those are great. And did they have a couple actual wrestlers in there? I think the first game did, but then the second game, it was like all rappers and Carmen yeah. lectures in here for some reason. <laughs> I remember there was, uh, what was it? It was like, what was that? They, it, was, it was called Legends of Wrestling. Wasn't there that game, there's Legends of Wrestling? It was like a lot of independent guys were able to sell their likenesses yep. to this thing. Yeah, so, yeah. Like the Eddie Guerrero. Right. Guys, uh, I think Sting was in, the, in one of them. Hogan yeah. was on the cover of one mm-hmm. of them. I know that and yeah. uh, the Backyard Wrestling had a bunch of like XPW and ECW guys who didn't go to WWE at the time in it as well. So like there was that weird era, like the early aughts of the independent wrestling video game um, that didn't last very long. Yeah, yeah, I think the last one had like Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan doing the commentary, and Bret Hart was in the game. It was 
it was uh, an interesting hodgepodge of characters. That's the thing, yeah. yeah, everyone's under a WWE deal right now. It's impossible to, to throw something like that together. Like, I would love it if there was, like, a, a pro wrestling syndicate video game that came out or something like that. But I don't <laughs> think that's going to happen. Right, something that uses the Aki engine so it's actually, you know, fun to play. <laughs> Ricky Rackman is uh, back at Tallahassee here wearing a beat-up sombrero with a stuffed parrot on his shoulder. And he looks dead into the camera and says he needs a gimmick. So it only took a month, but Ricky is finally picking up the wrestling lingo. Ricky then interviews a, quote, college-type guy about his spring break plans. (laughs) You look like some kind of college kind of guy. You getting ready for spring break? Oh, yeah. Are you going to be joining us in South Padre? I'm going to be there with my buddy for sure. Are you lying because of the camera? I'm going with Todd. Okay, that's a good thing. It is now time for Flair versus Sting, the match that started Nitro and one year later would end Nitro. During Sting's entrance, Madden accuses Hogan of cheating it uncensored, and Tony asks, how can you cheat in an Indian strap match? Whatever. Whatever you want to say. How do you cheat in an Indian strap match where there are basically no rules, no disqualifications? Tell it to Custer! Guys, I couldn't fucking believe that line, (laughs) that Mark Madden thought that was okay to say. (laughs) Custer was an American general during the uh, American-Indian War who uh, more or less slaughtered hundreds of Native Americans— I get that he's supposed to be the heel commentator, but, like, it isn't just that he's siding with the despicable members of the roster. He's literally just aligning with the despicable elements of society writ large. If you look at the record, I mean, uh, Custer, his entire party was wiped out eventually by the Indians. Everyone killed. So for Madden, who's to say what angle he was approaching? Like, what level of offense was he angling for? I mean, either way, it's offensive. But, like, you have to really (laughs) get into the mindset of Mark Madden to understand how offensive it was supposed to be. Tatanka was a free agent at this point. Maybe he was saying they're going to have him come in and bury Hogan down the line. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So uh, these two, they hit all the... Sting Flare, greatest hits, uh, chops, no selling, flare flop, it's all here. Uh, they brawl around the ring a bit and uh, head back inside. Uh, Sting gets poked in the eye. Sting attempts to splash into the ropes, but Flare ducks. Rick takes Sting into the corner with chops, but then Sting no sells it again. Sting pounds his chest and hits a press slam. It's all here. You've seen it before. Luger then runs into the ring, and Sting fights both of them off, and Stinger splashes both men. Sting then locks in the Scorpion Deathlock, and Flare taps out. But. Luger pulls out the ref. Unfortunately, Luger missed his cue and pulled the ref out (laughs) after the tap. So the bell is called, and the announcers have to attempt that it was a DQ win for Sting, not a submission win. I don't understand why it matters at all. Uh, But following this botch, Team Package beats down Sting until Vampiro runs down to make the save. finish was kind of a mess but yeah i mean if you're just looking for some sting flare greatest hits that, that these two did it and i think they did it better than hogan and flare did a couple uh weeks ago yeah to me sting and flare is like pizza uh i might even go as far as to say sting flare is like sex uh <laughs> like I, think for, I think for you any sting match is closer to sex than pizza i mean it is an experience but uh <laughs> even like even even cold pizza can be good pizza like even if it's pizza that you like i, I don't particularly like uh olives on my pizza but if somebody offers me a free slice of olive pizza with extra cheese i'm like you know what olive pizza it is uh and so with sting and flair like this again like this is not 
89 Sting Flair or 92 Sting Flair. Uh, but they both know each other so well and also uh, know the psychology of wrestling well enough that, you know, you give these guys 10 minutes, five minutes, whatever, whatever time constraints you want to put on them, they can go out there and have a, have a decent TV match. I wouldn't be surprised if they could still have a solid match today, you know, like pushing what uh, 130 years yeah. combined. I mean, even um, in TNA, they they had some uh, good. Well, I won't say good or yeah. great, but they had some solid TV matches in TNA. Yeah, I mean, their last match was definitely better than the the Hogan last match. Yeah, and I, I just realized Sting ended up being both those guys' last actual match because Flair didn't have another match after that, right? No, no, he didn't. Yeah, so. Seth Rollins then absorbed all of that. So in a way, Seth Rollins was Hogan, Flair, and Sting's last match. So Seth Rollins is the Highlander. He, he, he there can only be one. He, he needs to get the power of their Hall of Fame rings so that he can have their <laughs> spirits coursing through his his body like abyss in TNA. Uh, that that's that should be Seth Rollins' gimmick. Like he doesn't exist unless Flair, Hogan, and Sting show up. And much like Captain Planet use their powers in their Hall of Fame rings, and Seth Rollins is is unleashed on the world by their powers combined. <laughs> in the ring, Jarrett, Steiner, and the Harrises and the NWO biddies make their way out, prompting Madden to again talk about fucking Tylene Buck. It's springtime. The weather's great. Get on out. Enjoy WCW when it comes your way. I'd have a better time if Jeff Jarrett would loan me one of the girls. Maybe the blonde girl, Tylene's not doing anything later. What do you oh, think? Stop it. Jarrett gets on the mic and tells the girls to go backstage and get the jacuzzi started because Steiner has a long night in store for them. It's main event time, guys, and you know what that means. It is time for the Hogan Bump Challenge. Now, Garrett, if you're not familiar with the Hogan <laughs> Bump Challenge, this is something we do on the show every time Hulk Hogan has a match, which is we all place wagers on how many bumps we think the Immortal One will take in this match. Now, keep in mind, uh, this is a... Tag team match, which means he doesn't have to be be in there that often uh, and, and do that much work. But uh, you're our guest. So, Garrett, how many bumps do you think Hogan's going to take in this match? I'm going to say one. You think he mm. takes one? I think he takes a single bump, and I think I know exactly when it happens. Wow. That, that, is, a, that is a shrewd uh, bid, Garrett. Uh, obviously, he's been paying attention <laughs> to this game. He's, he's got the home version. Uh, I guess the, I, I, I want to say one, but to make this uh, competitive, I'll – I'll go over and say two. I'm going to go with my old faithful. I'm going to go with zero, <laughs> even though I know that's not right. But but someone took my wager of one. <laughs> so um, Hogan actually is the one to start the match with Jarrett, and uh, he even sells a little bit but gets tired of that and uh, you know just decides to get on offense, never takes a bump. Things quickly switch, though, as Hogan uh, clotheslines Jeff, uh, not getting any of a reaction. That's kind of crazy. Like This crowd was like hot for his entrance but not hot for anything once the match actually started. Hogan lands the 10 uh, punches in the corner, even bites Jeff. Madden is just burying him on commentary for doing so. Steiner then tags into the ring and takes Sid um, to the floor. At this point, we have now tagged in Sid. Steiner then flips off Hogan and says, Fuck you, Hogan, which was censored on the WWE Network. The crowd chants for Sid as Steiner and Jarrett take turns working him over. Sid manages to tag in Hogan, and in comes the Hulkster, who takes out Jarrett and Steiner with weak punches that don't connect. As Hulkamania is jogging wild, Sid just sits in the corner watching Hogan. Sid then gets to his feet and grabs Hogan by the throat and chokeslams him for Hogan's one and only bump in this main event, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Garrett is our winner. Oh, yeah! Yeah! What Do it! Do it, big man! Do it! Oh, yeah! What Do it! Up we go! Down we go! Yes! 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 
Sid gets in Hogan's face, telling him that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and we fade out. They uh, they executed what they needed to, and I think this would have been uh, much, much more uh, successful if this had taken place over the course of a couple uh, you know, weeks or so. It reminds me of the, the split between Michaels and Hogan in WWE, where the two of them actually were you know, partners for a month, and they actually had a big main event program at a pay-per-view, and then he turned on him. All this happening in one night was a little too fast, but um, still, you know, for what it is, I got to give kind of a positive to, to this <laughs> Sid arc for the evening. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of it because I know that this is pretty much the end of this journey, this ultimate thrill ride with Sid Vicious. Uh, I'm, I'm cool with what we watched this week. I think, to Garrett's point, even if the material is bad, there's something to... The, the the effort that Sid was putting out tonight. And I, I dug his effort. I, I dug the passion. And even if I had to sit through so much Hogan on this show, I, I think the payoff, while rushed, for what it was, it, 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 was pro- it probably went about as well as, as, as could have been planned. There's something about Sid and, and Steiner, who both just come off as so uncontrolled that you don't get from WWE today where everything feels so careful and calculated. Like when Steiner, this match, when he sat down at the announcer's booth, he immediately sweared. Like he said shit Mm -hmm. as soon as he sat down and it wasn't bleeped. It wasn't edited. And like Tony seemed taken aback, but you know, knowing the the nature of the business at the time, who knows if that was, you know, somehow planned or not, or if it was Scott just being, you know, his character. But, uh, I mean, this wasn't like a, gr- a good match or anything, and 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 uh, Hogan was very Hogan in it in a way that's always ob- obnoxious. But it was a lot of fun to watch today. Uh, probably was miserable 17 years ago, but today it was such a refreshing change of pace that I, I actually I enjoyed the entire episode. I wouldn't want to do this every week, and you know, God bless you guys for trying. <laughs> but I had a lot of fun watching this. So. Uh, yeah, overall, not the worst episode. There was certainly some bad there, but. That being said, like, it was kind of boring at times. I mean, things aren't really consistent. Uh, you're, you're right. I mean, us, we're watching it week to week, so it is sort of frustrating for us. But enough negativity. This is our silver lining uh, part of the episode. Uh, this is where we have to pick one unqualified positive from this episode that we really liked. And, uh, Garrett, what was your uh, silver lining for this episode? Mean Gene. Yeah? I mean, every, everything everything Mean Gene uh, did was superb, and it, it just really – uh, reinforces how much better he was at that job than anyone that they have today, pretty much in any promotion that I can think of. Um, he was a constant pro, even when uh, the guys he was talking to made no sense whatsoever. Um, uh, he had pretty funny lines uh, all the time. I, I wrote down like half my comp, my, my notes are just mean gene lines. Like when, let's see here, when, when David Flair came out, he said a young man who has a message for all America and especially the wrestling world. <laughs> And it was such a grandiose way to introduce, you know, David, David Flair, Flair, a guy who can barely talk for whatever reason, but he had a message for all of America. And uh, yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed watching Mean Gene. It's a shame they don't have him doing that today because, I mean, I'm sure he could still get up there and, and do a, a reasonable facsimile of what he used to do. When it comes to the network, instead of him being on Legends House, give him an interview show or something. Yeah. I think he'd be great. He used to do a lot of that for the 24-7 uh, channel, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, he would host uh, that the Legends Roundtable thing, yeah. Yeah. yeah mean Gene was a good one, uh, and I think if you go back and look at the entirety of this run of, of Nitro in the year 2000, he's one of the 
more underrated characters on the show. Uh, but you know what it is, Brian. Of, of yeah. course, my silver lining is the man called Sting. He does this. He does that. He's <laughs> as strong as a bull, Brian, and he's quick as a cat. And uh, just seeing Sting on this episode after what felt like years of <laughs> terrible, terrible WCW that lacked star power uh, for, for all these weeks, it, it was good to see Sting, uh, as well as Chris Candido. He'd be my honorable mention because I did enjoy uh, his debut on this episode. Uh, I guess for me, Candido was good. Uh, Gene was good. I can't believe I'm going to say it, though. I'm going to give it to Sid. Sid mm. gave like an incredibly layered uh, performance for, for Sid Vicious and by Sid Vicious standards on this show. I mean, this is a, this is a side of Sid we had never seen before, would never, ever see again. So uh, I got to give it to Sid. I thought, that was, uh, I thought that was great. But the people who didn't necessarily think this was great was uh, the people backstage. Uh, we talked about it a little bit off the top. We mentioned how terribly Uncensored did, and we're going to be getting some creative shakeups. And actually, during uh, – it is the next episode of Nitro where they officially announce on television that Russo and Bischoff are going to be coming together as a team. I was not an internet person at this time. This was not anything that I was following. I was not aware of this. But were um, either of you guys uh, you know, on the internet, were you reading these things? Were you aware of these shakeups backstage? And if so, how did you feel about it? I was, you know, very aware. Yeah, I was a, a regular daily reader of um, multiple wrestling websites, and uh, you know, bringing Russo and Bischoff back in, it 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 looked like a horrible idea. I mean, at the same time, it was already so awful that it was like maybe some change will be good. You know, even if it's two people who have already proven they don't really have what it takes to run this company. Um, so, I mean, there there was at this point almost no hope. I mean, for WCW fans, like it, there was no. I mean, I didn't expect them to go to business within a year, but I also had little interest in, in really watching a show. I, I was watching it out of inertia, basically, out of just habit. Mm. And um, I was hoping they would get better. And, and they did start to get better uh, the last few weeks they existed. I was a little bit more optimistic. Like, I was at least intrigued by the proposition of Bischoff coming back because I had always thought, and even to some degree, I still do think that. If there's one thing Eric Bischoff does know, it's TV and it's production. And Eric Bischoff can be an asset to your company, both on screen as a character and behind the scenes in terms of how your show looks. The the, the more troubling thing to me was Vince Russo, because now you've got this guy that I didn't like a lot of his creative decisions. And you've got him and Bischoff sharing an office and, you know, when you've got those type of egos, it's going to either be brilliant or it's going to be a fiery mess that uh, doesn't last long. And, and we know how it turned out. So I'd say I was cautiously optimistic at the prospect of Russo and Bischoff teaming up. Yeah, and for me, I mean, I was younger. I wasn't reading these websites. I mean, I feel like I'm kind of the case study for why the Vince Russo style of booking doesn't work because for me – I had no idea that Vince Russo had ever left. I had no idea who Vince Russo really was. I had no idea that we had changed bookers backstage and suddenly they're saying like, oh, these other people are going to come in and start writing the show. I had no idea. I didn't know Eric Bischoff had ever left. I just knew that his character wasn't on TV anymore. So for them coming out and saying this really meant nothing for me at that time. And I really, I don't know, I really wasn't 
looking forward to it either way. I mean, the fact that they said they're going to do like this big reboot and stuff was like interesting, but at this point, um, on the next episode, when they say that these people are coming in to write the show now, uh, it was a completely worthless proclamation for me. I feel like at the time, I, I forget if it was the story about Bischoff being removed from power in 99 or the story about Rusev coming in, but I know like the Atlanta Journal-Constitution had an article about it in the business section, um, which was very unusual at the time for you know wrestling – uh, creative backstage news like that to hit like the business section of a mainstream paper, but being a local company, the AJC was covering it. Uh, I was reading, you know, all the smart websites like the people that were subscribing to Meltzer and then basically stealing his news uh, on the <laughs> internet. So like all that stuff, it was you know a, a daily story for it felt like a week, like Rusev being brought or uh, not Rusev, but Russo being brought in and. Like uh, what that could mean for the company, and you know, it, it was a rumor before it was official, and all of that. So, if you were of you know the right age and, and looking at the right sites, like it was definitely something that was covered in great detail at the time. Garrett, uh, I want to thank you for coming by. It's been a uh, really great having you on the show. Um, thank you for putting yourself through this episode. I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> Usually, the minute people get on here, they tell us they don't like us or they're angry. <laughs> Having watched this episode, what advice do you have for us, especially as we entered these uh, these Russo Bischoff days? It's going to get a lot worse, guys. It's going to get darker before the dawn, and then when it finally <laughs> starts getting slightly better, it's going to go out of business. So um, <laughs> don't expect anything too great for the rest of the year. Okay, you've got Lance Storm coming in. He's awesome for a few weeks. Yes. Um, that He's like the only guy they booked well for maybe two months, and then they started screwing him over as well. Um, you've got as as green as they were and as silly as – it was to lump all of them together in this like eight-person stable that made no sense. A lot of the young power plant guys, when they first come in, just because they're new and young, there's like a bit of excitement about them. I think Jindrak and O'Hare are a tag team when they first come in, and they're pretty mm-hmm. exciting for a few weeks, especially with O'Hare being a, a, a pretty pretty tall and big guy who can do a swanton and all that. Um, so, I mean, you've got a tough road ahead, but uh, I, I think you've stuck it out this far. So I, I have faith that you're going to be able to stomach the next year of horrible, horrible nitros. At least it's not thunder, as you've said multiple times. Yeah, occasionally I'm just like, I want those thunders. I, I want, I want, I want to fill in the blanks. <laughs> uh, I, I do not. You know, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I know to quit when I'm ahead, and and you know, this is a, a, a perfectly acceptable level of poison to kind of test yourself with. But I think injecting thunder on top of nitro that, that would be uh, going too far brother man <laughs> my biggest problem with this entire episode was uh at the very beginning when i realized it was at the university of florida in gainesville and they had just won like a, a game in the ncaa tournament so you have all these gators fans doing the chomp and being really <laughs> obnoxious and i'm like did, did brian specifically pick out like a georgia bulldog to, to be the guest on this episode or not i don't know but um and even, even oakland was doing the uh, chomp at the beginning <laughs> he was yeah they were all into it and i'm yeah, I, I almost turned it off at the very beginning, but I stuck with it, and, and I'm glad I did. So, Well, thank you uh, once again for coming on the show. And, uh, of course, if you want to uh, continue following us, I am at Brian Maxman on uh, on Twitter and Instagram, or what all, whatever social media places. But uh, stop adding me on Facebook. I, I, I Don't do that. Um, 
bow that in mind, uh, Nate, where can people find you? Uh, I, you've got the weird thing with the numbers and the Zs and everything, and, and not just that, but it, it's the end of another week. You get to send us out with those, with those words of wisdom that's going to hold us over until we're back for spring break, baby. Yes, uh, you can find me on Twitter at in the number eight M O Z A I K at Nate Mosaic on Twitter, and uh, who knows, maybe this week give me some remedies so I can get over this space fever, this space flu. Uh, you know, maybe a hot toddy, maybe more sting matches, what, whatever you can recommend to to get me uh, back to one hundred percent. And again, thank you to everyone for checking out the show, downloading the show, and uh, giving us a listen and. Uh, Shout out again to Brother Garrett for joining us, and stay tuned for Keep It 2010, a uh, hot new (laughs) Impact production coming your way. (laughs) Uh, But as always, I like to leave the people on a positive note after uh, watching WCW from the the year 2000, and uh, I'm going to go out with the wise words of Destiny's Child and uh, Beyonce, who would be a great third-party candidate one year, and... uh, the way this episode had me feeling, guys, I'm like, WCW, if you keep acting this way, you're going to lose my love. I ain't got no time to play, so you better be playing. Hurry up. Or you'll be saying no, 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 no. When it's really yeah, 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 you'll be saying no, 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 no. When it's really yeah, 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 yeah. Shit like this. this, this.